Have you ever wondered what happened to the apostles after Jesus' death and resurrection? I know I sure have. We know a little bit about them from what's in the Gospels and the Acts of the Apostles, but most of Jesus' most faithful followers disappeared into obscurity shortly after Jesus' ascension into heaven, leaving behind plenty of fodder for myths and legends to build up around them, developed by curious early Christians who were probably well-meaning but didn't know the full story. One disciple that we actually know a fair bit about is the Apostle John. What you might know from reading the Bible is that he was a fisherman by trade, that he was in Jesus's most inner circle, and that later he would write the gospel, which has his name attached to it, the Gospel of John. But there's one story from his life that I bet you probably haven't heard before, and it has impacted me probably more than any other story I've heard about the apostles. So in this video, I'm going to share that story with you from the life of St. John the Apostle, a story of danger, of radical self-sacrifice, and hope. At the end, I'll share my own personal takeaway, and I'd love to read yours in the comments. But first, you may be wondering, how could an adventure like this be forgotten? How does someone as prominent as St. John just have a story that falls off the map entirely? Well, in church, typically we read from the Bible alone. We don't read from a lot of other books, even well-meaning books. You don't have someone going up in church and reading from C.S. Lewis, for example. They might reference it, but what we read is scripture. So if we're familiar with anything from the first century of the world, then it's probably going to come from that specific book. Holy Scripture. Think about it. How many events or people do you know about between the year zero and the year 100? If you're a history buff, you might know a couple of names or a couple of major world events, but this is ancient history we're talking about. Most things didn't even get written down unless they were extremely important. The only, only the most highly treasured of those things actually got passed down to us today. And then how many people today are reading ancient history? It's just not something that we commonly know about. So because this particular story isn't in Holy Scripture, it isn't very widely known today. So how do I know about it then? How am I coming to tell you this story today? Well, enter a man named Eusebius. Eusebius was the bishop of a city called Caesarea in the early 300s AD. Although he was a fairly prolific writer, he wrote a ton of works. He's most commonly known for his most famous work, which was called simply Church History. It was published around the year 325 AD and was the very first attempt at a written history of the Christian church as it grew from the life of Jesus into a force that even the Roman Empire had to reckon with. This book has been preserved and passed down to us today as an important scholarly source of history for the earliest few centuries of the church. And it is in Eusebius' church history that we find our story for today. It begins with a young man, not yet a Christian, but who seems to be investigating this new upstart religion that's occurring across the Roman Empire. He's never given a proper name in the story. He's just called a youth, so that's what we'll be calling him throughout. He lived in a city near to the metropolitan center of Ephesus, not in Ephesus, but in a city nearby Ephesus. And Ephesus was a major hub for trade across the Roman Empire, so this nearby city where the youth lived likely shared the benefits of culture and trade and wealth because of its proximity. Ephesus also happened to be a location visited by several of the apostles, and this is recorded in scripture. Apostles like St. Paul and the St. John we're going to be talking about today. St. John, to give you some background to his life, is kind of like the Fast and Furious movie franchise. He just keeps coming back. It's very hard to kill him. It is said that the Roman emperor Domitian ordered that he be boiled alive in oil as a spectacle kind of execution, but he just preached while he was in the oil and he came out unscathed. Since he proved challenging to kill, Rome just decided to put him on an island instead. I guess if you can't get rid of him by killing him, you just get rid of him by putting him in seclusion away from other people. So he's sent to this island called Patmos, where he received the vision that is now recorded in the book of Revelation. In our story, John has been released from this exile on Patmos and is now a very old man. 
Despite his age, John is still traveling throughout Asia Minor, what is now Turkey, in order to give advice and direction to these small churches which he and the apostles had started. He was acting as sort of a traveling preacher slash consultant, something like that, for the churches at the time. And one of these cities that he went to was the city near Ephesus where this youth lived. After appointing a bishop and settling various other church issues that came up, John noticed that this youth was observing what was going on, and he identified him as a young man showing great promise. He was described as being strong, handsome, and quite passionate, zealous even, which is exactly the sort of young man who could either become a very powerful believer in Christ or a force for great harm, depending on which way he ended up being steered. So, John, recognizing the youth's need for discipline and direction, he recognized the need but realized he didn't have time himself to stay and train him personally. So John committed him to the care of the recently appointed bishop in that city and said, you take care of him, commit to taking care of him before the church and before God, and I will feel good about leaving him in your hands. Once the bishop accepted the charge, John was satisfied that the matter would be taken care of internally. He felt like the youth was in good hands with this new bishop, and so he departed to visit the other churches in the area to continue his circuit of preaching and consulting. Right away, the bishop began to train the youth as he promised. He went so far as to bring the young man into his personal home where he could teach him by example, by showing him the way he himself lived, and he could keep a close eye on him. During this time, the bishop not only raised and took care of the practical needs of the boy, but it says that he also came to cherish the boy in the way that a father would might cherish his son. All of this culminates in the baptism of the youth and thus his full admittance into the Christian church. A happy story, right? But unfortunately, it doesn't end here. The bishop believes that this baptism that happened would seal the youth to the Lord forever, meaning that he could never fall away from his faith. And as a result of that, he relaxes the strict care that he kept him under, with which he had been training him and making sure he didn't get into trouble, as youths tend to do. And rather than proving his spiritual father right, the young man is enticed into following the wrong crowd. At first, his new friends didn't seem so bad. They brought him into their circle, they accepted him, and allowed him to accompany them on these expensive entertainments, like going to high-end theater performances or the chariot races, perhaps. But with his guard down due to their generosity, he soon discovered how they afforded their expensive tastes. After an evening of seemingly innocent fun, the crew decided to commit a robbery and forced the youth to come along. As soon as he had participated in that act of theft, a split in the road was before him. Two choices that would determine his fate. He could repent for his sinful behavior and return to Christ, or he could carry on in sin and align himself further with this gang. Ultimately, the youth decided to reject the faith that he learned from John and the bishop and decided to double down on a life of crime. As it goes with sin like this, he didn't just continue the status quo of crimes he had been doing, but followed the gang into more and more extreme forms of criminal behavior. What St. John had seen in the man, he rightly identified the youth to be a zealous man in search of direction and belonging. But rather than this zealous behavior going towards the church and the faith in Christ, he found identity in the gang and pursued that zealously. The streets of the ancient world could be very dangerous at night. There wouldn't have been any street lighting like we're accustomed to in the modern world, and nasty characters could be hiding in basically every shadow, in every nook and cranny as you're walking down the street. There also was nothing like the modern police force. There was no 911 that you could call or police patrolling to keep the city safe. 
There would have been military guards, perhaps, but they did not exist to protect and serve the people in the same way that we think of police officers now. In that sort of environment, nighttime crimes like petty theft, vandalism, and even muggings would have been able to thrive and would have been abundant. But that kind of small-time crime wasn't enough for the youth and his gang, and they soon planned a grander crime, which would have been greater risk, but also greater reward. I like to picture this as the ancient equivalent of Ocean's Eleven, in which the crew breaks into some high-security Roman facility and makes off with all of their gold coins jingling in their bags, and as a cherry on top, the young man gets the girl in the end. Now, Eusebius doesn't tell us the exact details of this heist, but he doesn't say that it wasn't like this, so I think it's fair to use our creativity a little bit in describing this. Where the youth's grand crime departed from the Ocean films, unfortunately, is that it doesn't have a happy ending. Once he committed that heist, as we're calling it, he came to the conclusion that he was too far gone to ever return to a normal life again. If he was caught, he would most likely be subject to a brutal Roman punishment, beginning with pain and ending with death. Not something he's looking forward to. And also, his expectation was that God would not be any more forgiving than the Roman authorities. And so, to postpone the inevitable in his mind and get the most out of his remaining life, he decided to run out of the city into the mountains outside of the town and form a band of robbers. The very scoundrels that originally initiated the boy and taught him this life of crime have now become followers of his bandit leadership as he is now a, a true bandit chief hiding in the mountains and jumping passersby. Robbers like this would often stake out a section of the road between cities and ambush travelers out in the wild where there was nowhere to run or hide and no one to call to for help. They would leap upon them, steal their goods, and then likely leave their bodies for the animals to dispose of. Very messy business. But even in that world of wilderness banditry, the youth seemed to excel and become more feared than all the rest. He became notoriously violent, vicious, and cruel in the administration of his growing criminal empire. A few years later, St. John the Apostle returns to the city where the youth had lived. And when he arrived, he asked the bishop to restore the deposit which both I and Christ committed to you, in his own words. The bishop assumed that this deposit John was speaking of was literally a financial deposit, and he became worried. He knew for sure that he had never borrowed money from the apostle, but at the same time, he didn't dare question John, his authority or his claim, because he was an apostle. He was someone who was seen to be the most supreme authority. He didn't dare suggest that the apostle was making a mistake. He was so confused, in fact, that he just sat there silently trying to work out what to say in response. Luckily, John relieved him of his tension and clarified that he wasn't speaking of a financial deposit, but a deposit in the kingdom of God, a spiritual deposit, the soul of that youth that he had given into his care. When the bishop realized this, he wasn't comforted. Instead, he burst into tears at the memory of his failure. He reports to John that the youth is dead at first, perhaps trying to avoid his own responsibility in allowing the youth to stray. After all, John left him, the young man, in his care specifically. When John pressed him for further details, how did he die and what manner was his death? The bishop finally admits that he was not dead physically, but dead to God and had become a brigand, robbing people in the wilderness. In response to this, John tore his clothes and lamented, which was a typical Jewish custom done at the death of a loved one or in an act of great mourning. Clearly, he took the spiritual death of the youth as seriously as physical death would have been. The only difference is that spiritual death can be more easily undone. And John leapt into action to do just that. He rebuked the bishop by saying, a fine guard I left for a brother's soul, basically saying that the bishop gets a bad performance review. And he ordered a horse to be brought immediately. Without delay, he rode the horse up into the mountains to find that bandit hideout where the youth was and confront him and lead him back to Christ, hopefully. This kind of thing is honestly hard for me to 
wrap my head around in modern times. The best I can do is picture the city in which I live being surrounded by a Mad Max-style wasteland with roving bands of drug-fueled car berserkers riding around and just killing everyone that they see. What John did was akin to me leaving my safe home in Dallas, Texas to go out into the wilderness and intentionally try to find these horrifying marauders and talk to them. These aren't guys that operate with any kind of morality. They're the kind of people that stab first and ask questions later. I know this may sound a little bit ridiculous, but that sort of mental image is helpful for me to understand the kind of danger that John is taking, the kind of risk that he's taking on in order to try to save this young man. As he led his horse up the road, the apostle was ambushed by the very robbers he was looking for, and he was taken prisoner. It was probably the strangest ambush they had ever been a part of because John didn't try to resist or even run away. Instead, he embraced their arrival, letting them know that he had come for this very purpose, to be taken prisoner and led to their leader. Surely the bandits were confused, but they didn't know what else to do, and so they took him prisoner and ended up leading him to their leader. The youth was sitting back at camp, awaiting the return of his men. Apparently, one of the benefits of leadership is not having to actually go to these ambushes, but be able to participate in the money and the wealth that comes from them. So he's sitting back and allowing the others to do the work, and he just leads the group. As he saw the shadowy figures of his gang approaching, he recognized that they had had a fruitful evening. They had a captive in their midst. Potentially, it could have been someone of prominence that they could hold for ransom or extort for further money. But when the crew grew close enough that he could actually start to see their faces, his excitement turned to horror and then horror turned to shame. He recognized the man he had once revered, the Apostle John. And despite the fact that he was armed and had nothing to fear from the old man, he actually turned to run away. It was as if all the culmination of all the sin of his life had come to confront him in that very moment. And in the presence of such a holy man, the shame was too great for him to bear. His men were shocked to see their fearless leader, such a vicious and cruel man, fleeing from the elderly saint. But even more surprising was the response of the octogenarian prisoner that they had who began to chase after their retreating leader. In his pursuit, he shouted out to the youth, Why, my son, do you flee from me, your own father, unarmed and aged? Pity me, my son. Fear not, you still have hope of life. I will give account to Christ for you. For you, I will give up my life. Stand and believe Christ has sent me. He's yelling this after the young man as he runs. Hearing this, the youth was overcome with emotions. They washed over him one emotion after the other, fear, shame, confusion, resignation, and then perhaps a little bit of childlike hope. He dropped his weapons, the source of his power over others, and turned to weep into the old saint's arms. He confessed all his various acts of violent and evil that had been committed over the years, and the tears rolled down his cheeks as a second baptism in which he sought his reconciliation with God. In return, John embraced his former pupil and swore to him that he could be forgiven even for the most heinous of his sins and crimes against humanity and God. The apostle then led him back to the church, prayed with him, and then actually participated with him in the process of repentance. Both the innocent saint and the repentant young sinner fasted, prayed, and committed themselves to acts of holiness until that world-weary youth was restored to full membership in the local church from which he never again departed. For me personally, this is a story that goes beyond what you've heard in the classic parable of the prodigal son. I know this is probably bad to say because those are the words of Jesus, but this is almost like that parable lived out in the actual saint's life. As you see the 
full circle of a man who followed Jesus and heard his teachings into a person, a, a man of old age, a, a saint who actually lived it out in a incredibly compelling and self-sacrificial way. The way that John throws caution to the wind and being an old man doesn't even think of himself, but goes into the jaws of death, into the den of bandits and actually pursues the chief bandit in hope of saving his soul. That kind of thing is something that I hope would be done for me and something that I hope to be a man who does for others. But why should we care about stories like these today? It's not like this is in the Bible, so is it even reliable or helpful for us? For answers to these questions and more, check out this video where I present the way Protestants, and in my opinion everyone, should view the saints. Until next time, my name is Stephen Cram, and this has been My Apologies.